It's Friday night, and you are watching Tisky Sour. As it's a Friday, I'm joined by Aaron Bastani. How are you doing, Aaron? Michael, I'm very good. Very happy to be back with you. It's been too long. It has been too long. I was quite excited today when I realized I was going to be back with you. We're going to talk about the economy going into the ground. We're going to talk about Twitter. Elon Musk seems to be running that into the ground. And we are talking about the Qatar World Cup. Obviously, we'll be talking about the epics of it very quickly. Aaron, are you excited for the football element of, of what we're about to witness? Hard to say, really. I mean, it's unprecedented. There's never been a Christmas World Cup. I mean, it's something to look forward to in the, in the depths of winter. From a football perspective, I think it's going to be really interesting seeing European teams try and adapt playing in the Gulf. I know there's air-conditioned stadiums. I know they're mostly playing at night. But I think teams like England, Germany, France, obviously the Scandinavians, they might not struggle. Look, this might come back to bite me on the backside. One of them might win it. But I suspect they're going to struggle. And maybe a few big names might go out early. So I think it'll be interesting. We are going to come back to that as our final story. It's the day after Jeremy Hunt delivered his highly anticipated autumn statement. And the country's economists and commentators have been pouring over the details of the tax and spend changes the Chancellor has planned. But beyond the policy changes that have been promised, there is one fact that stands out above all others. The UK economy is screwed. The Office for Budget Responsibility are the official watchdog who look over government finances. They have said that the next two years will see the biggest hits to household incomes ever. So this is a chart from the Institute for Fiscal Studies using OBR data. You can see next year household incomes are predicted to shrink by 4% and the year after by 3%. Up until now, incomes have never shrunk by more than 2% in a single year. And that includes the global financial crisis, the Brexit vote, and even COVID-19. So historically, this is really, really bad. The summary of the OBR data from the Resolution Foundation was also incredibly stark. So they said this, real household disposable incomes are forecast to remain lower at the start of 2028 than they were before the pandemic hit in 2019. The outlook for real wages is even worse, with the value of workers' pay packets not expected to return to their 2008 level until 2027. This unprecedented 19-year pay downturn has cost workers £15,000 a year compared to a world where their wages had instead continued to grow at their pre-financial crisis rate. So this is the result of 12 years of Tory government. Now, some of that grim data was put to Jeremy Hunt on Sky News this morning, and this was his defence. Well, what we have is a very challenging international situation. Uh, the drop in growth in Germany, for example, is even higher than here. Countries all over the world are dealing with the inflation shock caused by the Ukraine crisis. And what we have to do as a government is to say, what is the big thing that we can do to help families, to help businesses the most? And what people are worried about is the rise in the cost of living. That weekly shop going up, their mortgage rates going up, their energy bills going up. And this is a plan which, when you cut through the difficult decisions that I announced yesterday, it brings inflation right down, you start to see growth going right up, and you start to see our economy getting back onto an even keel. And that's the most important thing as a Conservative. I know sometimes you have to take difficult decisions, but if in the end that means more stability for families and we're protecting the NHS and schools, as you said, then we know we're doing the right thing for the long term. And that's what we do in these kinds of situations. 
Now, what you've been hearing a lot from Hunt and other Tory politicians is that they can blame everything on international circumstances. We're in a terrible situation, but so is everyone. But it's not that plausible. Yes, there have been international difficulties, but we've been uniquely bad at responding to them. The statistics from the House of Commons Library show that compared to pre-pandemic levels of GDP, the US economy is now 4.2% larger than it was. The Eurozone economy is 2.1% larger. Canada, Italy, France and Germany are all in positive territory. But the UK economy is still 0.4% smaller. Aaron, we're going to go on to talk about the tax and spend measures in this budget. First of all, though, can I just get your comment on, I mean, the dire economic outlook that we're all currently facing? Well, I suppose it's, it's quite boring for our audience at this point, because, of course, we've been talking about this really since February, March. It was clear that with the Russia-Ukraine crisis, there was going to be a spike in global energy prices. It's been clear post-COVID there was going to be a spike because of the problems around supply chains coming out of China, East Asia. So we've known this for a long time. You know, we've had predictions, I think, from the Centre for Economic and Business Research, various other bodies, saying that we're going to see the, the hardest year when it comes to living standards and the pound in your pocket buying less since the 1950s. Turns out it's actually even worse than that. So we've been talking about this and speculating about it for a really long time. But now you have the OBR saying quite openly, yeah, we're, we're, we're basically now into a second lost decade. You know, if you look at the years where you've seen the biggest drop in the in the standard of living, where you can buy less with the money you earn, where inflation outstrips pay increases, you've got falling real pay. If you look at the worst years on record for that, you know, nearly all of them of the top five are in the last 15 years. And we've got more of that to come. So I graduated, Michael, I entered the labor market in 2007. That's when I finished my university degree. I then did a master's degree. This is not normal for us. We know nothing else. 14 years of utter crap, you know, turgid conditions. Life not really getting better, actually, in many ways, getting significantly worse. High streets look way worse than they did 15 years ago. People just have less money to spend, having less fun. We know that rates of, you know, depression and mental health are through the roof. It's not entirely because of economic circumstances, but it plays a big role. So, yes, it's an awful situation. The most concerning thing is it's going to get significantly worse. And, you know, we say we're in a second lost decade, but until politicians start to make different choices, well, we're going to have a third lost decade and a fourth lost decade. There's no iron law, some scientific principle, which inevitably means things will get better, growth will pick up, living standards will improve. That is the orthodoxy that politicians have been fixated with. They just presume things will, you know, be better in two or three years time. We'll just have a natural upturn. Turns out that's not happening. And I suppose the question to those watching is, maybe it doesn't happen. And if it doesn't happen, who, who, who has to change that? Because it doesn't appear to be coming from uh, legacy politicians or legacy media. There is no law, obviously, that it goes up. But it, it has historically. It's, it's, it's never been the case that if you graduate in 2008, say that 20 years later, incomes won't have gone up at all. Right. So obviously, in any two decades, you take that period. This is incredibly unusual. Right. So I know what you're saying. Like, we, we shouldn't be complacent that growth is going to come back, but it is, it's worth sort of just pausing for a moment on how historically bizarre this is. There was clearly something about, you know, democratic capitalism that tended to bring about some degree of growth and that has completely broken down. Or it's just that we've had incompetent governments for 12 years. I mean, between those two, if you were to sort of hazard, is this, Tory incompetence, or is this just something secular whereby growth has ended? Where would you fall on that spectrum? 
well, I'd say it's capitalism. I'd say we're, we're, we're in the middle of something quite, I think, significant with regards to capitalism. A couple of interesting things about in the last few years. One is that actually average life expectancy has decoupled from GDP. So you're seeing a country like China overtake a country like the United States when it comes to life expectancy. Other countries too, Cuba, you know, you're looking at very poor countries actually catching up with Western Europe and, and North America when it comes to life expectancy. So all of a sudden, GDP isn't the, isn't the be all and end all. Normally, the higher your GDP, the higher your life expectancy. But actually, we're seeing lots of turbulence there. You say it's unprecedented. Well, of course, it's unprecedented in the, in the context of the last several generations. But let's go further back. You know, if you were born in the, in the 1300s, Michael, things were pretty crap. You've got the Black Death. You've got a third of Europeans dying. If you, if you're born in the first century, second century Rome, rather, in the, what, after 160 AD, you've got the Antonine Plague. Millions of people die. You've got the Plague of Justinian in the, in the, what, AD 500 something. You know, again, tens of millions of people die. You've got World War One, World War Two. So this idea that, well, naturally, inevitably, the economy expands, people get wealthier. Yes, okay. There's rising inequality in many instances, but we see a floating of all boats. That is a blip. For a pretty small part of the world, it turns out, actually, it's not universal, even in the 20th and 21st centuries, and it's relatively short-lived. And I, I, I suppose, Michael, this is going to be the, the terrain of debate over the next 10 to 15 years, because right now, and we'll talk about this over the rest of the show, Labour are criticizing the Tories, not necessarily because of the decisions they're making on distribution, but because of their failure to grow the economy. The question is for social democrats, for people who care about injustice, for people who think we should be able to redistribute wealth better than we presently do, well, if we don't have economic growth, how do you want to do that? Because it's going to entail some quite radical policies. Let's talk about the, the more technocratic element of the autumn statement, so taxing and spending. We're going to start with tax, because I think that's where the more dramatic announcements were. Tax measures which were announced in the autumn statement, so the threshold for paying the 45p tax rate has been reduced from 150000 to £125,000. Thousand pounds. So that means more people will be paying that top rate of tax. There will be a two year freeze on personal tax thresholds. What that means is that more people will get dragged into higher thresholds because inflation will push more people into those top rates, either the 40p or the 45p amount, or actually the, the 20p amount as well. And there'll be a reduction in the generosity of the dividend allowance and the capital gains tax annual exempt amount. Don't get too excited about that because it's still pretty good to be receiving your income in the form of capital gains. And the windfall tax on energy firms is set to rise from 25% to 35%. Obviously, still some loopholes there And when it comes to investment allowances. Now, by 2027, these tax rises should earn the Treasury an extra £33 billion a year. Now, much of that is just making up for the £22 billion in tax cuts, which are the legacy of Kuateng's brief time as Chancellor. But if we take tax changes made since the pandemic as a whole, taxes have risen considerably. So this chart from the Resolution Foundation shows the total annual change in tax revenue generated by the policies of the last three chancellors. So changes made by Sunak when he was chancellor increased the tax take by £58 billion. That included the national insurance rise, which was then scrapped, and a corporation tax hike. Now, Kuateng came in, he reversed some of those, and the net effect of his short stint in office was to cut taxes by £22 billion. Hunt has now come in and raised them by £32 billion. So the net effect of all of these changes from those three chancellors is that since the pandemic, taxes have gone up by £68 billion per year. Combined with slow growth, this means that the level of tax as a proportion of GDP is the highest it has been 
in 70 years, and it could become the highest it has been ever. So this chart here is from the Resolution Foundation again. In the late 1940s, the tax take was 37% of GDP, so just after um, the Second World War. It's been lower ever since then, gone up and down a little bit, but been lower ever since then until now. We're back up now about 35, but it should be going up to 37 to 38% in the next couple of years. So taxation in Britain is at a level which is historically high. That doesn't mean, though, that by international standards, we're a high tax economy. In 2021, countries like Finland, France and Belgium all had tax levels which were more than 50% of GDP. And nearly all of Western Europe has considerably higher taxes than Britain. That will remain the case even if taxes rise to 37% of GDP as they are projected to. It's also worth noting the tax changes announced by Hunt are broadly progressive. This is the change in income. All the tax and benefit changes announced since November 2021 will have on people by 2027. So the purple is the effect of changes announced before the autumn statement. The yellow is the effect that the autumn statement announcement will have. So relative to if no changes have been made, the poorest 10% will be marginally better off. The richest 10% will be £2,500 poorer compared to if no changes to tax and benefits had been made. So it's important to note here, this is compared to if there had been no changes to tax and benefits. So the poorest people in society are not going to be richer than two years ago, but they will be a little bit better off than if these changes to taxes and benefits had not been made at all. So it doesn't fully compensate people, but you can see it's broadly progressive if you sort of take it on its own. Labour, though, still think the Tories are approaching tax all wrong. Some of the things that weren't in there, for example, the non-DOM tax status still exists. Uh, if we close that loophole, that would bring people in to pay tax. If you make Britain your home, you should pay your taxes here. It could bring in more than £3 billion a year. Private equity bosses, their um, income is not taxed at the same rate that ordinary working people's income is, is taxed. That's another loophole that should have been closed yesterday. And instead of just coming time and time again to the ordinary working man and woman asking them to pay more in taxes, I would have liked to see more from those on the broader shoulders. The windfalls of war being made by the energy giants are still not taxed uh, to the degree that they, they should be. And every pound left on the They're table... Fine, but there's still those windfalls of, of war that we could be taxing more. We should not be having these investment allowances, uh, which just means that there are some big energy companies that aren't even paying any of this windfall tax. That's not right. And, and so we would have done more on that front uh, to alleviate some of that pressure on the ordinary working person who, you know, at the moment, you, you get your income, it's being eroded by double-digit inflation, and now it's going to be eroded further by these range of stealth taxes that are coming uh, in. And we know that bills are going to go up further next year. So I understand that people feel really anxious about what's happening uh, at the moment. And when you see some of the you know, big companies and the very wealthiest in society you know, getting off scot-free, I, I just don't think that's right. It's not the right priorities. So that was Rachel Reeves sort of saying the, the top owners are getting let off lightly and they're focusing too much on taxing ordinary people. I mean, Aaron, the Tories are getting sort of attacked from the left and from the right for increasing taxes. What's your assessment of what's happened here? I think it was a good budget. I mean, I was pleasantly surprised. I don't think it was a good budget in so much as I thought it had everything I wanted to see. But, you know, you had HS2, you had core Northern Powerhouse Rail, which isn't everything, but it's it's better than nothing. You had East-West Rail. And yeah, you were, you were 
putting taxes up on um, the windfalls for energy companies, albeit only 10%. I thought the introduction of road tax on electric vehicles, I think that's fine. I think given how cheap they're getting so quickly, the point is now that the state needs to pay for energy infrastructure for them to charge. That doesn't exist. You know, the private sector is not going to do it. So if that pays for the state to lead out EV charging stations across the country, great. By the way, it won't because the Tories are useless, but I'm not opposed to that as a measure to, to raise funds. And then, of course, moving the, the, the threshold for the top rate, all welcome, all good. I mean, my God, Michael, two months ago, we weren't expecting this. The thing about stealth taxes, I mean, I know that I'm not, I'm not paying any, any more in tax. I don't know about you, Michael. I think most people watching this aren't paying anything more in tax. For me personally, two things really matter, which are completely absent in the, in the political conversation, Michael. The first is I'm a homeowner, right? Uh, and so my experience of this cost of living crisis is fundamentally different to a renter. I'm a homeowner. I'm very lucky in that respect. Secondly, I have a student loan from a certain period where the interest rates are actually fixed quite low. So my interest rate on my student loan is only 3%, right? I think at the moment it's at 325 3.75%. It's, it's pathetically low. And of course, for people that um, went to university a little bit later on, I think the deal was RPI plus 3%. And of course, that's so high. RPI is an interest rate inflation indicator. That was, of course, so high they had to, I think they fixed it at 7% or something else. But the point is, the interest rate on those student loans are really high. The people with those loans tend to rent, they're being screwed. And yet you've got the opposition talking about stealth taxes. Actually, the big stealth taxes for working people, low and middle income earners, particularly those under 45, are rents and their student loans. Nobody in politics is talking about it. Very frustrating, but that's why Navarro Media exists, Michael. Yes, I'm, I'm looking at this chart again. I think probably we both are paying a bit more tax. I mean, I, Navarro, we're on median salaries. So that means we're in the fifth decile. So we should be paying £500 more tax because of changes made in the past two years. I assume that's because the tax-free threshold, more of our income because of inflation is now above the tax-free threshold. So that would mean that your marginal rate will be slightly higher. But I absolutely agree with your point. You know, if I'm paying £500 more tax a year, like, you know, I pay £800 rent a week. And, and my taxes, I get the NHS, I get the roads work, you know, the state does a lot of things. It does it very badly, because we, we, we have a very incompetently managed state. But in theory, the state does a lot of things. So I, I really don't resent the amount that comes off my wage bill that goes to the state. You know, I, I do a bit because it's misspent by the Tories, but whatever. I, I think in theory, that's a good thing to happen. What I resent is giving £800 a month to someone who doesn't do anything productive with it at all who was merely lucky enough to have the, the capital to buy a flat in a place where I want to live. So I, I, I see why there is a lot of advantage to the Labour Party for sort of attacking the Conservatives on, on raising taxes and having a high level of, of overall taxes. But I'm actually, I think they should be higher. You know, I, I do think they should be weighted more towards the rich, but I think they should be higher. If you look at countries where, you know, I would really want to live based on sort of the economy there. I mean, there are other reasons I don't want to live in Scandinavia, but... If I were to look at a sort of economic structure, I was like, I want to, I want to be situated there. It would be somewhere like Scandinavia, where you've got much higher tax levels than here. And yes, that means that more of your wage goes at the end of the month. But guess what? That creates much more productive and dynamic economy. So your wage is probably going to be higher in the first place. And then also, you're going to spend less on public transport. You're going to spend less on, and obviously, we don't spend money on healthcare, but the NHS is crumbling because our taxes, not enough of our taxes go to it either. So. I think it's time kind of for the left to say, let's actually be a high tax society. You know, I can see why Labour don't say that, because they want to win the next general election. I don't really judge them for that. But I think, you know, we're not trying to get elected. So I think we can say, you know, high taxes, 
good. Let's have good services. Why constantly say, oh, how could we possibly increase taxes? We're going to have to spread it more thinly and more thinly. I think go for it. That's what the one thing I'm happy about with this, this autumn statement is that taxes are up. Hopefully when Labour get in, that means there's going to be a bit more money to spend on, you know, actual, actual decent things. What do you think, Aaron? Are you, are you in favour of a high tax society? I do actually think the middle class could get a tax break. When I say the middle class, I mean, the, obviously the working class too. But, you know, the very poorest, the very lowest earners don't pay any tax, of course, because of the, you know, the, the thresholds and how they work. I, I do, th- for instance, think that right now in Michael, for people watching this or listening to this on the podcast later on, you go down the high street, you can see how hard it's been hit since COVID, obviously before then. By the way, t- 2019 was an awful year for retail, right? We've been, we've had five, six terrible years for retail. I would see a, a VAT cut of 5%. And actually, when you go talk to businesses, small businesses, you know, it was interesting. So I spoke to several where I live locally in the context of the Quartang statement. And I said, well, they're doing this on national insurance and they're doing this with regards to, you know, corporation tax. He said, honestly, none of that affects me. If we could cut, you know, VAT by 5%, fantastic. So I feel like, yeah, you probably cut VAT. Maybe you could cut national insurance contributions. I don't know. I mean, these are just things I'm saying definitely on VAT. But I think people are feeling the pinch now really badly, not because of tax, but because, of course, interest rates are going up. And if you've got a mortgage and you're on a variable rate or you're renewing your mortgage or you have a mortgage and you're a landlord and you pass those costs on to your tenant, you know, that is what's going to really make people feel the pinch at the moment. It's energy inflation because we import so much gas because we've had a failure of industrial strategy around energy in this country for the last, well, 40 years, but particularly since 2010. And it's, and like I say, it's rising costs of, of, of credit because of interest rates going up. So that's why people are feeling the pinch. I think it's important to acknowledge that. Again, I'm with you to a certain point, Michael. I agree. Labour aren't going to win elections saying, oh, we need to have, you know, high tax economy. I agree with you. Bash the Tories for having tax too high. But the reality is people aren't feeling the pinch because of high taxes. They're feeling the pinch because of higher interest rates, right? You know, some people have seen their mortgages maybe go up six, seven hundred pounds a month, right? In the last six months. That's got nothing to do with the NHS or the fact that you're, you know, paying for pensions and education and uh, all, all sorts of other good things. So like so often with Starmer, Michael, and Starmer's Labour, I feel like there's an opportunity missed in terms of explaining what's happening to the broader public. That's obviously not this, you know, it's a different part of politics and the political game to winning an election. But of course, you do want to set the terrain and the broader sort of attitudes which are in place and which are prevalent for when you do come to power. Because of course, if you come to power and everybody's like, yeah, tax is really bad, then when you have to increase tax, you're going to be incredibly unpopular. So I, I wouldn't say that they're, you know, two separate things and Labour should just want focus on one and not the other. I think you're right. We have to talk about higher tax because fundamentally as well, Michael, we've not mentioned this. We're an aging society, you know. The median age of this country is only going to get higher. We're only going to have more and more oldest old, people over, say, 80. I think it's going to double between 2015 and 2030. Now, of course, very, very high cost for health and social care for those people. I don't think anybody says we shouldn't care for those people, right? So the idea that somehow, you know, uh, public spending as a percentage of GDP is somehow going to magically go down or stay the same is nonsense, purely as a result of the, of the aging phenomenon. It's going to continue to go up, even if you don't care about social injustice, even if you don't care about, you know, funding other public services, even if you're Nigel Farage, it's going to go up because of that one phenomenon. That's, talk, that's before talking about the fact we're going to have to have a, a particularly distinct energy policy now because of geopolitics, right? The end of American empire, the decoupling of Russia from Europe, 
every single European country now is going to have to take domestic energy policy far more seriously. I think over the long term, over the next 10, 15 years, we're going to look more like France in that respect. Again, we're going to be spending more money. So I think you're right. The political class need to be honest to the public and say, we're going to have to raise more money in tax to do the things that you want and need us to do. There was a good point from the economist Aaron Advani in The Guardian today. It's on the difference between how we tax capital gains and income from work. So he says, currently, someone earning an income of £1 million as an employee will pay 47% tax on every additional pound they earn, and their employer has to put in another 13.8% on top. If they can instead take their pay through a company they own and manage, they can take the money out as a capital gain. This allows the first £1 million to be taxed at a rate of only 10%, after which the rate is still only 20%. Capital gains are particularly unequally distributed, with more than half of taxable gains going to only 5,000 people. A budget seriously aimed at focusing tax rises on those with the broadest shoulders would have corrected this anomaly. I think that's really important. We do live in a system, if you're rich and you can pay for a really good accountant, then you can get all of your income via capital gains instead of income, instead of, you know, normal income that the rest of us earn. And then you pay very low tax on it, much lower than everyone else. So again, the tax system is rigged in favor of the rich, even if they're paying more proportionately because they're not paying the same taxes that the rest of us do. Um, so a proposal, which, I mean, the IPPR put it forward. I actually think this might be one of the things that Labour do put forward at the next general election, because it would net them a lot of money, and I think it would be quite popular, is to say we should tax capital gains at the same rate that we tax income. So the IPPR said that could net £12 billion a year. So it seems worth doing to me. We've talked about tax. Let's move on now, though, to the spending implications of the autumn statement. On that front, this was the announcement made by Jeremy Hunt. We know that a strong economy depends on strong public services, so we will protect them as much as we can as we deliver our plan for stability and growth. We do have to take difficult decisions on public finances, so we're going to grow public spending, but we're going to grow it more slowly than the growth in the economy. For the remaining two years of the spending review, we'll protect the increases in departmental budgets we've already set out in cash terms, and then grow resource spending at 1% a year in real terms in the three years that follow. Although departments will have to make efficiencies to deal with inflationary pressures in the next two years, this decision means overall spending in public services will continue to rise in real terms for the next five years. So in the immediate term, departments will have to live with the cash increases they were promised before the inflation hit, so they were promised more. They're now going to have to you know, deal with the fact that that cash won't go as far as it would before the war in Ukraine, for example. Also, what he said that in two years, public services will be limited to a 1% rise in spending a year. So that probably will be a real squeeze, especially as we've got some protected departments. So you always end up with communities, housing, capital spending. They get loads of cuts. So a 1% rise doesn't mean that every department will get a 1% rise, right? Now, putting this off for two years, though, means that most of the pain of austerity 2.0 would come after the next general election when we might have a Labour government. So would Labour stick to the plans? 
First of all, I do recognise that because of the mess that the Tories have made, Labour are not going to be able to do everything that we want to do as quickly as possible. And we've set a set of fiscal rules that an incoming Labour government would stick to. But again, there are different choices that could be made. Different choices could have been made yesterday. If the government don't make those choices, those are the sorts of different choices that we would be making around tax, for example, at the next election. I'd also say this, you know, in the last year, we've had four budgets and four chancellors. By the next election, we may have another four budgets, another eight budgets. Who knows? So I don't know the state of the um, of, of the fiscal position I'm going to inherit. would you stick to those spending cuts? Well, I, I have said that we've got a set of fiscal rules to balance day-to-day spending, to get debt down, and we will set out our, our, our particular, our specific proposals at the next okay. election. But I do recognise that because of the mess they've made, that does impose constraints on an incoming Labour government. But we would make different choices uh, in terms of tax to alleviate some of that pressure on the ordinary working person. And also, we would put in plan our plans to grow the economy because ultimately, that is the way to okay. make living standards. But I want to, I want to, I know you can't talk absolute specifics. I want a general idea of what you're going to do as far as the, the spending is concerned. If you, do you, I mean, do you want more money spent on public services? Well, I've said, for example, on this non-DOM uh, tax, you know, that we would use that money by closing that loophole to invest in the NHS workforce. But how much that, money would that raise? Well, £3.2 billion. Pounds. Yeah, but uh, that's not a huge amount when, you, when the whole budget is £136 billion. The, the government aren't doing it, and that is the whole point. We could use that to double the number of people going to medical training school. I say that's a massive big deal, to increase the number of nurse training places, midwife training places, district nurses. Those are just some of the differences. So even if you've got a different, a difficult fiscal inheritance, and we know that a Labour government will will have that because of the mess the Tories have made. You can still make different choices. You can prioritise different things. And under Labour, it would be ordinary working people that were prioritised and ensuring that our public services are lifted off of their knees, which is where they are at the moment, and asking those with the broader shoulders to contribute more. So that was a bit waffly, but ultimately the message seemed to be that Labour would get debt down, but they'd focus more on tax rises than spending cuts. So I, I, I think that Rachel Reeves wasn't committing to limiting public spending in the way that Jeremy Hunt seems to, you know, it seems Jeremy Hunt is trying to lay a trap. And I think she probably didn't walk into it there. Um, Aaron, what did you make of Rachel Reeves' response? Are you feeling as sympathetic as I am? It sounds more like fiscal consolidation than austerity. Of course, there are two ways to sort of, quote-unquote, balance the books. Not that ever happens in Britain. Hasn't happened for a very long time. You increase, like you say, taxes or you reduce spending. What you saw after 2010 with George Osborne, I think the desire initially was to basically every £1 increase in tax, you're going to see another £4 decrease in spending. Crazy. Normally, when you see austerity programs around the world, it's generally a ratio of one to one. So every pound or every dollar or whatever the local currency is that you see increased with tax, increasing public revenues, you see the same amount in terms of cuts to public spending, trying to reduce a deficit or or whatever. You've had a debt crisis and you have a you know structural adjustment program put on you by the IMF. That's generally what it is. It's one to one. And that's kind of what Jeremy Hunt's going towards. And, and like you say, Rachel Reeves is, is demurring from talking about cuts. Maybe Labour would. I mean, we don't know the inheritance they would get. I think if it was, you know, if we were in a, re- a three-year recession when they came in in 2024 and we were running a massive deficit, I, I think they probably would cut some public spending. Probably suspect they would. You know, I think people have to be realistic about what these guys believe. I, I, I don't think Rachel Reeves is, you know, we've had so many of these kind of maniacal neoliberal ideologues in recent years. Rachel Reeves is not one of those, but I also don't think she would take particularly big risks 
confronting a situation like that. When I hear them say it's the Tory inheritance in trust, Kwarteng, the problem is so much bigger than that, Michael. Britain, and indeed much of the world, but particularly Britain, there's a couple of other countries who've done as badly as us, but we're particularly bad, actually, is, is somewhere which hasn't had a growth model for 14 years. Since 2008, we have not had a growth model. The city of London today employs far fewer people than it did in 2007. You know, you had huge businesses like Lloyd's, World Bank of Scotland, you know, funding huge amounts of corporation tax because they were making these gargantuan profits before the global financial crisis. That's gone. And it's, it's not come back and it's, it's never coming back, frankly. And I, I look at people like Rachel Reeves and fundamentally they don't really have an answer to that. You know, what, what is the growth model? Now, for all the, for all the attacks on John McDonnell, and Jeremy Corbyn, they had a growth model, which is massive state intervention, industrial strategy. We want to produce more, you know, things like steel and domestic infrastructure. And we want to give a boost to, you know, uh, domestic spending by making sure you've got more money in your back pocket because we'll increase the minimum wage, stuff like that. You know, you might not agree with it, but it's it's a way that you can see that we would have medium long-term economic growth. Equally with Trust and Quartang, I definitely didn't agree with them. But the, the the prescription they made of low taxes was precisely because we've not had a growth model for 14 years. It's the one honest thing Trust was talking about, right? It's the only time she was actually credible and saying things sincerely. And so I do worry, Michael, there's a paucity and a poverty of imagination right now with Labour saying, oh, well, we'll, we'll be constrained and restricted because of what Quartag and Trust did. No, we, we've literally not had a growth model in this country for 14 years. And it shows, right? If you live in Bolton or you live in Bristol or you live in Ipswich, or you live in you know, Motherwell, I don't care. It's not hard. People that live in these places, look, let's be real, outside of Zones 1 and 2 London, people that live in these places, and actually bits of Manchester increasingly, right, it looks like a spaceship, they can go outside and they recognise that this country is not as wealthy as it was 14, 15 years ago. That's the fundamental point here. And I, I do worry that because admitting that is so enormous, Labour won't do it. Because they love to say, oh, we, we've got to be honest with the electorate. Be honest then. Say we haven't got, had a growth more for 14 years. Actually, Labour, by supporting austerity after 2010, and before it as well, but particularly with Ed Balls and Ed Miliband after 2010, Labour, after 2010, weren't serious about a growth model either. So it does worry me. And I, I do feel like in, in, in 2022, at the start of the 2020s, 14 years after the global financial crisis, we still have a political elite who aren't really serious about solving the major problems. Labour are hinting at it, you know, but the policies aren't really following up. You know, non-DOMs, three billion, fantastic, do it. That is not an adequate response given the scale of the challenge I just talked about. Let's go to our next story. Following Jeremy Hunt's autumn statement, there was an interesting exchange on BBC Question Time. It took place between an audience member and economics editor at The Spectator, Kate Andrews. Can the British economy survive another two years of austerity? What do you think, Richard? Um, I fear that it can't. Most of the Chancellor's measures seem designed to make things worse rather than better. And <laughs> I, I, I fear the worst, really. You asked how we can survive another two years of austerity. The past few years have not been years of austerity. We have spent a record amount of money in peacetime. The furlough scheme cost 70 billion pounds. We paid people quite generously to stay home. This year, we're running a budget deficit of roughly 177 billion pounds. It's like 7% of all GDP. This would not be happening if we had been 
pursuing austerity. Today's autumn statement is a wake-up call that we cannot continue to spend as we have been doing. It, that, that includes pandemic spending, but it actually goes back to before the pandemic on things like pensions and things like the NHS. These are huge, expensive commitments that we've made. And Anne talked about easy money. Now, I know he meant it in a slightly different way. I'm going to reframe it. The era of easy money, of cheap borrowing, of we'll throw that on the debt is over. That is an international trend and has become very obvious and that was made very clear in the mini budget. We cannot borrow like we used to. And if we are going to have these very generous promises, everyone is going to have to pay for it. And that's what this autumn statement was, a wake-up call. I think there are a few pitfalls in it. I think um, we have to stop putting vulnerable people into the same categories. A lot of people are very vulnerable and they're going to be this winter and they need a lot of support. But for some reason we put millionaire pensioners into the same vulnerable category. And if you are a working person who doesn't fit into one of those categories, who really needs the money, or frankly really doesn't, you got rinsed in this autumn statement. There isn't a lot in there for you. And the last point I want to make about this is, um, and I think this is the biggest pitfall or the biggest question for the Prime Minister and the Chancellor. It is very obvious now that our commitments to pensions and the National Health Service are what is forcing taxes to go up. We have to pay for these things. And yet in this statement, we saw the state pension rise with inflation, 10.1%, and we saw billions more for the NHS. Now, perhaps you can't reform those things other overnight, but as long as this is our plan to keep funneling money into these very expensive systems, expect your taxes to go up. And if we think the tax burden is too high, highest, um, I think, is the post war, then uh, we need to talk about reform. That was Kate Andrews. She was former associate director of the Institute of Economic Affairs. That's the organisation that is said to have masterminded Kwasi Kwarteng's disastrous mini-budget. So I'm not sure how seriously we should take her advice about the economy. But Aaron, the implication there, you know, we're being taxed too much, we need to cut back on NHS and pensions. Oh, and by the way, the state hasn't been doing austerity for a really long time. How would you respond to that? She's a fucking idiot. That's what she is, Michael. And the thing is, no, she's invited on BBC Question Time repeatedly just to voice this idiocy, just to say something that's idiosyncratic, which very few people actually out there in the public say or think or feel. She's saying this and she's there and she's invited on precisely because she's unrepresentative. You know, I think it's I, I think it's good that you have a wide range of voices. Fantastic. But, you know, you're more likely to see a representative of the IEA on, um, or somebody who's previously worked at the IEA, on, on BBC Question Time than you are a trade unionist. You know, we had Julia Hartley Brewer on twice over a period when you didn't have the Green Party on once. You know, this is a national party which is polling as high as 7% in, in, in polls in this country. You know, councillors up and down, England and Wales and Scotland as well, separate party, of course, but they're, you know, they're in, they're in government with the SNP. But apparently Julia Hartley Brewer has more of a voice. These are idiosyncratic, cantankerous people who are saying nonsensical, idiotic things, gibberish, frankly, to get out a rise out of people. So that people like Navarro Media make clips about them. And so, of course, people watching this say, we don't talk about them then. Well, we've got no choice because you've got a public service broadcaster, <clears throat> not, not so fast when it comes to BBC Question Time in this country, but the 70, 80% market share of TV news. They are making very marginal, very ridiculous people front and centre of the national conversation. I don't know why, Michael. We're going to need some kind of inquiry in sort of 10 to 20 years' time. Why are so many journalists and producers at the BBC fixated with the idea of austerity? Why do they love austerity so much? 
you know, it's not, it's not any good for them. It's not good for the country. Are they just masochists? Are they part of some sort of esoteric hidden religious movement, which is, you know, committed to inflicting pain on as many people as possible? There must be no other explanation for it. It's so important to say because there is something a bit gaslighty about what she said there. You know, we haven't had austerity for a very long time. Now, obviously, the government has been spending a lot of money over the past couple of years because we had a pandemic and money spent on the NHS has increased because we've got an aging population, right? So there were some things where the money spent had to increase, pensions the same. But austerity isn't just about how much you spend, right? Austerity is about how much money you give to the things that make society work. So education still has funding lower than 2010. The Justice Department funding is 25% lower than it was in 2010. Uh, transport is 50% lower than it was in 2010. So these are the departments that you know make society function. Transport, that's literally how we get around. And they are supposed to be working on 50% less money than they were in 2010. So you ask anyone in any of those sectors who works in those sectors or, or uses, I mean, we all use transport, anyone with kids, any kid uses the education service, right? That's austerity. So to have someone standing up there who's you know, works the spectator, work for the Institute for Economic Affairs saying, oh, austerity is over. Like, it's not just wrong, it's, it's very offensive. And so that's why, yeah, let's have more trade unionists, please, on, on, on question time. People who actually represent people and less people who cut their teeth working for organizations with shady financial arrangements because we don't know who funds them. Let's go straight to our next story. Twitter has been a pretty wild place since Elon Musk took over. First, Musk decided to sell blue ticks for $8. Pranksters began impersonating public figures and companies. Millions were wiped off the stock of some of those companies. And advertisers, obviously, responded by leaving the site in droves. But now there's another exodus um, from Twitter. And this time it's from another group equally necessary for Twitter to function. The advertisers, because it gives them the money. These people, because they make the whole thing work. It's the company's staff. So the purge here began when Musk sent an email to the 3,700 Twitter employees who hadn't already resigned or been sacked. It said this, so it's titled A Fork in the Road. Going forward to build a breakthrough Twitter 2.0 and succeed in an increasingly competitive world, we will need to be extremely hardcore. This will mean working long hours at high intensity. Only exceptional performance will constitute a passing grade. Twitter will also be much more engineering driven. Design and product management will still be very important and report to me, but those writing great code will constitute the majority of our team and have the greatest sway. At its heart, Twitter is a software and service company. So I think this makes sense. And he goes on, if you are sure that you want to be part of the new Twitter, this is the new hardcore Twitter, please click yes on the link below. And then there's a link to a Google form. Anyone who has not done so by 5 p.m. Eastern time tomorrow, so that's this was sent on Wednesday, of course, will receive three months of severance. So that's three months pay, but you'll be sacked. Whatever decision you make, thank you for your efforts to make Twitter successful. Elon. Now, as the deadline approached, hundreds of workers resigned and the hashtag RIP Twitter began trending. And one former employee told the Washington Post this, I know of six critical systems like serving tweets level of critical, which no longer have any engineers. There is no longer even a skeleton crew manning the system. It will continue to coast until it runs into something and then it will stop. Now, next in a possible further sign of the end times for the company, Twitter closed its offices and removed employee access. 
So the lockout will remain in place until next week. So staff cannot, can, can literally not go into the office. Now, Zoe Scheffler is a journalist at tech news site Platformer. She tweeted this about the closures. We're hearing this is because Elon Musk and his team are terrified employees are going to sabotage the company. Also, they're still trying to figure out which Twitter workers they need to cut access for. Now, disgruntled employees might not be too worried about being locked out of Twitter HQ because Musk seems perfectly capable of sabotaging the company all by himself. In any case, the implications of the lockout remain somewhat unclear, and it's not obvious that Musk followed through with firing anyone who didn't agree to be hardcore. Kylie Robinson is a tech journalist with Fortune magazine. She tweeted, What I'm hearing from Twitter employees, it looks like roughly 75% of the remaining 3,700-ish Twitter employees have not opted to stay after the hardcore email. Even though the deadline has passed, everyone still has access to their systems. If that's true, um, so if they hadn't clicked the hardcore, it will, and if they were to get sacked, it would leave Twitter with under a thousand employees. When Musk took over, there were around eight thousand. Um, some reports are even more stark, though. This is a post from a verified Twitter employee on the Workplace Forum Blind, and they tweeted Twitter down to two hundred and thirty-eight employees after the second purge. Now, by verified, this means that they got that account. So we know that this was a Twitter employee, but they're anonymous, so they could be you know, playing games, or it could be true. We don't really know. Either way, it seems Musk didn't manage to get buy-in from as many employees as he had hoped. So this is a report in the New York Times about meetings as the deadline for that 5 p.m. approached. So they write, in his pitch, and this is to various people in the company who Musk doesn't Musk doesn't want to leave. Mr. Musk said that he knew how to win and that those who wanted to win should join him. One person who spoke with him said, in one of those meetings, some employees were summoned to a conference room in the San Francisco office while others called in via video conference. As the 5 p.m. deadline passed, some who had called in began hanging up, seemingly having decided to leave even as Mr. Musk continued speaking to people familiar with the meeting said. Now, Musk, if you don't know already, was forced to pay £44 billion for Twitter and is expected to pay £1 billion a year in interest on loans taken out to cover it. Yet he seems to be taking things in his stride. In reaction to the mass exodus, he tweeted this. So this is a meme of someone doing a V sign in front of a grave. He's put the Twitter bird both on the tombstone and on the person making the V sign. So I'm unsure as to what the implication of this. You know, Twitter is happy that Twitter is dying or has died. I'm unsure. Aaron, what does this tweet mean to you from Elon Musk and what the hell is going on in Twitter? Lots of people are tweeting, you know, it could all be down within a week. What's your verdict? <laughs> What's my verdict? I'm not a, an engineer, Mike. I'm not a computer scientist um, and I'm not there. So it's, uh, it's a strange one. I mean, look, the way I see it is, and, and, and from what I've gained from people I've spoken to about this is that the idea of it's just going to suddenly crash and go offline. Plausible, but it's not likely. If you have a massively reduced staff, what is going to happen is, of course, in the in the short to medium term, you get more and more problems. The site is more and more difficult to maintain. And obviously, you can't develop new products, which is what Musk is talking about constantly. And then, of course, you're losing not just engineers, you're losing human resources, you're losing accounts, you know, you're you're losing people that process payroll. You know, I've seen the security guards, but you know what I mean. So, and those are all very important 
positions. And of course, it's easy to recruit for, for, for some than others. What I don't understand, Michael, because I, I always, and I think people know this watching our, our, our shows, particularly on Friday, me and you, Michael, I think you and I both try and do this, which is we always try and adopt the complete opposite perspective to our own to maybe make a bit more sense of something, right? You know, put your shoes in the, in the completely contrasting point of view. And I'm looking at the kind of the people who are the Elon fanboys, you know, saying this is business genius. He's turning around a company. Well, it was making profit in 2018, 2019. He's now, you know, he's done a debt leverage buyout. It's now paying a billion pound interest a year. I don't don't think that's a turnaround. But anyway, (laughs) that's a bad start. But they're saying that, you know, he's going to, he's going to develop this incredible company and actually they can do what they were already doing with far fewer people. And that the reason why you're seeing the media criticize and attack Twitter and particularly Musk is because ultimately they're going to prove there's lots of fat around Silicon Valley. There's lots of fat around what you often hear on Twitter, the PMC, the professional middle class. Obviously, there's some truth to that, right? There's waste in all sorts of bureaucracies. You know, Pareto, who's an Italian sociologist, you know, he, he said that you, you, often, uh, you often find in big organizations, 80% of the waste comes from 20% of the sources. This applies to a bunch of other phenomenon too. I'm sure that's true. I'm sure it's true in the NHS, Michael. The problem is it's very difficult to determine where the waste is coming from. And often when you try and cut waste, you also sever many necessary things to keep the organization ticking over. So look, I try and listen to those people, but I still don't get an explanation as to why he's tweeting. And if you thought, oh, this is, you know, business sort of acumen, 101, the guy's a genius. I, I don't understand the tweets next to the tombstone, the replies to AOC, the hectoring online. I don't get it. I do not get it. Surely if you were going to do really unpopular things, do them, don't talk about them. That's what I don't get. And that's what makes me think perhaps he doesn't have this Mephistophelian plan as I think some of his supporters suspect. Yeah, I mean, it is super interesting. One thing that's often said about him is he really wants people to think he's funny. So apparently he's always trying in Hollywood to sort of like make friends with comedians and he really wants Nathan Fielder to like him. So this buyout, you know, wasn't necessarily a business decision. It's just he wants people to think he's funny and that's why he's still tweeting. I think the other thing to think about here, I mean, regular viewers of the show, well, no, I don't, you know, I think Elon Musk is a smart guy. I think what he did with Tesla and what he did with SpaceX is impressive. But people do change and people do get high off their own supply. And I think the Elon thing is happening very much at the same time as the Kanye thing, right? Which is, I think both of them are geniuses in their own way, but both of them like mega celebrity being able to do anything they wanted, being surrounded by yes people meant that they're not as good at the things that they used to be good at. And I think that's quite possible here. It might be that Elon Musk used to be quite a good business person. And now he's, you know, got so deranged with his own wealth and power that he's not. That's very possible. And I'd, I wouldn't be that surprised if Twitter does go down in the next week or so, because if you if, if you fired all of those engineers, then w- the moment there is a big problem, you've got no one to troubleshoot it. So it seems possible to me. The one thing I, I would say, though, is I think people have underestimated how important the network effects on Twitter are. People say, you know, look, it, it could just go down. Everyone could move. One, there is an alternative yet. And two, even if it goes down for a week, the moment it comes back up, there's so many people who've got all these followers, so many people who are following all these different people. I think it's going to be very, very hard for for a different website to compete. So I do think, you know, Elon still has a valuable asset, even if it's not worth 44 billion pounds, and even if this is a terrible start. Our final story, 
The FIFA World Cup, which will open in Qatar on Sunday, has been marred by reports of the inhuman treatment of migrant workers who built stadiums and by controversy over the country's poor record on LGBT rights. But Piers Morgan thinks the criticism has been somewhat hypocritical. Here he is speaking to Emily Maitlis on the News Agents podcast. Piers, let's turn to football. We're four days away from uh, the opening of the World Cup. Um, David Baddiel told us that he's staying home, that Mm. his version of football is staying home. Uh, Gary Lineker said he wouldn't receive Qatari money. Uh, He doesn't like the feel of it. I think the the word Badil used was reprehensible. Would would you go to Mm. Qatar? You excited about the games? I am going to Qatar. I'm doing some punditry for Fox for the America-England group stage because my show airs in America and and England, so why wouldn't I? Um, And also, I've got to say, I find a lot of this sports-washing debate uh, laced with rank hypocrisy. I mean, in the I wrote a column last week in which I went through all the problems that all the countries in the last 32 have. And, and I mean, for example, eight of the countries in the last 32, that's a quarter of the countries in the World Cup finals, uh, outlaw homosexuality. You know, one in four <laughs> countries. So if you're going to use that as the stick to beat Qatar with, you have to then beat the other seven countries. You don't have a World Cup. And if you don't have it in Qatar, which is the first Middle Eastern country to have it, where do you have the World Cup? Do you go to Africa, where many countries, uh, it's illegal to be homosexual? Do you go there? So that rules out that continent. Uh, do you go to America, which has rather draconian laws about abortion, which play very badly, for example, in the UK? In other words, once you start putting your moral, moral halo on, right. Where does it where does it stop? And who is morally clean enough to actually host a world so, cup? Are we are we the country that illegally invaded Iraq, which then started a twenty year reign of terror by ISIS? Are we morally yeah. clean enough to host a okay. world cup? I mean, so, I so, just think it's it's fraught, fraught with hypocrisy. So um, a lot of what about there? Is that basically a, a big what about It's facts. Well. It's a two fingers up to um, members of the LGBT community and presumably to the thousands of migrant labourers that have died in the making of Qatar in the last 10 years or so. I mean, mm. is that a kind of like Piers Morgan doesn't really care about would gay you, rights? Would you, ever go to the, would you ever go to the Middle East? I haven't been for a while. Would you go to the Middle East? I would. Right. End of, end of debate. Why is that the end of the debate? Well, if you don't agree with what they do, don't go there. Well, I don't think that's the same thing, is it? I mean, we're looking It's at... absolutely the same thing. This is what I mean about the hypocrisy. It's completely the same thing. <laughs> I haven't been there for a while. It's a really <laughs> silly answer. What did you make of that? It was an interesting argument so far. I'm going to make myself really unpopular here, Michael. Is that okay? Yes, please do. Your favourite answer is the unpopular one. My, or my favourite answers of yours are the unpopular ones. He was enti- he's entirely right. He's entirely right. Look at some of the teams in the group stages. Saudi Arabia, I mean, no more morally clean than Qatar. You could go a bit further. You could look at a country like Poland or Serbia. You know, Poland's looked at as kind of like an illiberal democracy now in Europe, a bit like Hungary. You could look at the United States with regards to abortion. I don't think that's like, you know, what's going on in Qatar with regards to LGBT rights, but you can see why there's a good political argument not to stage a major sporting event in the United States, for instance. So, I, I do agree with them. I don't think Qatar should have been awarded the World Cup. I don't think that for a moment. But the selection of it to me seems a bit a bit strange. You know, somebody, if you're willing to fly on Air Emirates, if you're willing to go and stay in um, Abu Dhabi, uh, or if you're willing to go, you know, on a on a holiday somewhere in the Gulf, I 
I, I do find it a bit um, irritating, frankly. The problem here was in the awarding. The problem here was a lack of political will around this tournament during the construction of the various stadia and whatnot. And now we're a week away from this. Rather than politicians and journalists doing their job, people are expecting football coaches and players to, to have a voice. It's absurd. So if people want to go and support their teams out there, you know, good luck to them. I kind of do agree here on the hypocrisy. That said, FIFA never should have given the, the, the World Cup to Qatar for a number of reasons. I mean, Christ, Michael, this is basically one city which is going to be host to a World Cup in the middle of December, still scorching temperatures for the players there. The workers' rights are terrible. And of course, the LGBT rights are, are terrible too. But I, I think one thing that you could do in awarding future tournaments, if you were FIFA, is to ensure a certain labor minimum with regards to standards. You could collaborate, presumably, with the International Labour Organization, the ILO, to enforce that. That's one thing you could do. But I, I don't think that it's now up to supporters and players and coaches to be the moral arbiters here. You know, that lets FIFA and politicians, and I think quite a few journalists too, off the hook. I mean, I, I tend to agree with you. As you said, I mean, you were saying earlier, we try and put ourselves in the, the opposite shoes. I'm, lots of people are very, I think, understandably, you know, pretty annoyed that it's at Qatar and, and, and do support a boycott. So let's look at some arguments as to why that might be the case. And there are some reasons, I think, you know, that is specific about Qatar. Obviously, he mentioned there, you know, the war in Iraq. And, you know, no one said we should boycott tournaments in America or Britain. I think that's a perfectly reasonable thing to say. Quite a good point, in fact. What you could counter that with is to say that there is a way in which this World Cup is more implicated than other sporting events in countries which have also done bad things. And that's because, I mean, you have intimated towards this already, Aaron, that you can say the World Cup itself is directly responsible for hyper-exploitation. There was a story in The Guardian very recently about this. It's about security guards working in the World Cup park. Um, so The Guardian write this, the guards say they work 12-hour shifts and claim they usually get just one day off a month. We just go between our duty and our accommodation, said one holding out his phone. You can show me anywhere in Qatar and I won't know where it is. Analysis by the Guardian of workers' pay notifications corroborated by workers' accounts of their working hours and pay suggests that the guards are typically paid £310 a month for 348 hours on duty plus a small food allowance. It is understood that this includes 104 hours of overtime for which they are paid 150 rials, which, if correct, equates to less than 35p an hour. Such working hours and overtime pay appear to be in breach of Qatar's labour laws. The security guards say they know that they are being underpaid but feel powerless to act. It's illegal, but the government keeps quiet, so what can we do? Claims one. There's also, of course, been much focus on LGBT rights and women's rights. Naz Mohammed is a gay Qatari living in exile. He spoke to Sky Sports about what life is like for LGBT people in Qatar. A lot of us over there really like don't know about each other, right? Like because we just it's unsafe. And when one person is found out, the law enforcement punishes them and then taps into their entire network. They really just, you know, we have no right to privacy, basically. They will go in, they'll go through your contacts, they'll try to find all the other LGBT people that you know. So that's, that's a risk. So people really try to keep their networks small. Then on top of that, if you saw the Human Rights Watch report that came out recently talking about the preventive security department and how they're basically kidnapping and torturing people in solitary confinement for their sexual orientation and gender identity, they would bring the same person more than once to these 
facilities and beat them up and subject them to conversion practices. And then they would offer them some safety in exchange for working for them as undercover agents. And some people do that for their safety because they're trapped. And so now you have the situation like where you, you're scared of your own community there because you don't know who's working with the law enforcement. You don't know who would get caught and get your information leaked. It's like survival for the fittest situation. And it's just terrible. So just, I suppose there are a couple of bits of evidence as to why people might be, you know, wanting to boycott Qatar. I suppose I should also say I have every respect for anyone who is boycotting the World Cup in Qatar. I mean, it's very much a legitimate position. Uh, it is a bit rich, someone like Emily Maitlis, who, yeah, she says, oh, I haven't been to the Middle East in a while. She still would. But for some reason, she thinks it's morally bankrupt for someone to go to the World Cup in Qatar. It's a bit weird, isn't it? Yeah, totally. I mean, look, Michael, I, look, we're not saying that boycott's stupid or it won't do anything or you shouldn't do it. But at the same time, I wouldn't stigmatise somebody who's not in, engaging in a boycott. Look, if you're Welsh and you're a supporter of the Welsh national football team, they've not been to a World Cup since 1958. They're going to this World Cup in Qatar in 2022. I think, of course, you're going to watch it. Of course, you're going to support your team. If you could afford it and you had the inclination, I can totally understand why you'd go to Qatar. And actually, going somewhere like that, highlighting what's going on, talking to people, talking to workers, talking to Qataris, I mean, that's also a... That's a form of political engagement. I, 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 so while I'm in, I'm in England and I'm just not going to watch a game on the TV, I'm sorry, I hate to break it to you, it's not, that isn't political action. It's not. It's not. It's not. Maybe some people disagree, but that, that's my view on it. I think if that's political action in the 21st century, well, we're pretty screwed because it's incredibly passive. Political action tends to be active and engaging with people and persuading people. I actually increasingly feel like maybe Qatar made a mistake with this, because I think it's not going to be good for them to be in the spotlight in this way, in the global spotlight for, for a long period of time. We're seeing it now with football, for, uh, with drinking rather. You won't be able to drink outside the, the specified fan zones. In stadia, you will be able to if you're in executive boxes, which you know, costs an extraordinary amount of money. And I, I, I feel like, look, perhaps you shouldn't award, alongside the Olympics, one of the most important commercially significant sporting events on earth to an autocracy which imposes quite strict religious law just an idea maybe maybe don't do that if you want the whole world to converge there then they have to offer hospitality to them i think that's quite straightforward you know it's a bit like what we saw with the danish cameraman uh, and his team michael in doha and they were told to stop recording and the security guards said they were going to smash up the camera you've asked to host the world cup that the media have now converged into your country. What were you expecting? So if you don't want people in your country drinking alcohol, having fun, if you don't want LGBT people in your country, I wouldn't say fine because it's not fine, but don't put a bid for the World Cup because those people are going to come. Again, it's with FIFA, Michael. It's with FIFA. And I, I wouldn't want to really blame anybody else personally. Yeah, I think that is kind of the sad truth. We talked about this on a previous show when it came to Russia, which is that however bad the country has behaved beforehand or however many rights were abused in the process of putting on that contest, if the journalists are treated well and if the fans are treated well, it's going to be a PR coup for that country. So everything is going to depend on whether or not yeah. people who are, who are attending the World Cup end up being miserable or not. And I think it's very difficult to say at this point whether or not that will happen. If they, if they manage to treat everyone who turned up to that World Cup badly, then that will be an absolute fail when it comes to soft power. But one would imagine they're not that stupid. I don't know. We'll, we'll have to wait and see. Let's wrap up there. It's getting quite late. Aaron, it's been a pleasure as always being joined by you on a Friday night. 
My pleasure. Grateful to be finally joining you once more, Michael. Hope we didn't get too controversial for our audience this evening. <laughs> I don't think we did. I don't think we did. Lots of, lots of meaty topics though, this evening. That's it for us for now. We'll be back on Monday at 7pm. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.